the song is a very close friend of mine and uh, I've been discipling him I suppose over the last uh, five or six years out of a really really deep and difficult life um, a life that involved uh, suicidal ideations um, a life that involved mental institutions and real deep deep struggles in fact um, when he was not here but back east and institutionalized and so forth uh, we talked a lot on the telephone and the Lord really healed his life and healed his heart and transformed him and it was out of that that he wrote that song and uh, that's really the testimony of of a disobedient child of God finally coming to the realization that what he needed to do in his life was learn how to obey teach me to live what you say and to apply the Word of God that's the greatest lesson that any Christian will ever learn to learn to apply the Word of God in life I was asked this morning if I might just share with you a little bit about how that happened in my own life and sort of give you a testimony but before I do that I want to read a passage that I go back to a lot when I think about what God has done in my life um, I hope you brought a Bible I want you to get used to bringing your Bible to chapel if you don't bring your Bible God have mercy on your sin sick shriveled up soul um, <laughs> We want you to bring your Bible, all right? So have it handy. And uh, you can even get a small Bible. One student said to me yesterday, I carry a very small Bible, so no one knows I have it. So, uh, no, carry your Bible, whatever side. But anyway, in James 4, I want you to look with me for just a moment at verses 13 to 17. And I'm reading from the authorized version. It says in verse 13, come now, you that say today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Now, what he means by that is um, come now, you that say we're making all of our plans. We've got it all wired. We've got it all figured out. Tomorrow we're going here and then we're going there and then we're going to do this and then we're going to do that. You that lay out your whole life pattern, you that have it all figured out. Verse 14, you don't know what will be on the next day, right? You that are making all these plans. For what is your life? It is even a vapor, like vapor that rises off hot coffee or boiling water, that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And you ought to say, if the Lord, what, wills, we shall live and do this or that. You can't say that. You can't say, well, tomorrow we're going to do this and the next day we're going to do that. You don't know that. So you that rejoice in your boasting about what you're going to do, all your rejoicing is what? It's evil. Why? Because it doesn't consider whom? God. Now, let me just talk about that from my own life. I grew up in a family where we had preachers all over the place. I'm a fifth generation preacher. My grandfather was a pastor of a church. He was pastor of a couple of churches while I was growing up. All of his friends were pastors. My dad was a pastor. All of his friends were pastors. And when I say I grew up with pastors, I'm not kidding. They were everywhere. And I grew up in the church. I, I went through the church all my life. In fact, when I think about my life, I don't think about houses I lived in. I think about churches I ran around in. 
That's really true. I, I moved into my 17th house on my 17th birthday. Okay, so I, have no, I don't think of any place as home, but all I can think of is churches where we were. I can remember running around choir lofts and across platforms and you know how the preacher's kids are. So uh, I, I think of my life in terms of churches. That was that was my life. I was in every class. You know, I, I did everything. I memorized the verses. They stuck all the turkeys on my head and the stars and the pins and the, gave me four zipper Bibles. And I had a quarterly collection to rival the Library of Congress. You know, I, but I, I went through church all my life. That's all I really knew. And I never really rebelled against that. I can't say that I um, that I didn't believe it because I did. And I loved my parents and still do. And and I, I loved the Lord in a very limited way. And it was all fine, and I wasn't antagonistic, and I, I didn't rebel against that. I had some rebellious times as a young person when I did some serious things that I shouldn't have done and uh, encountered a little bit of trouble with the law. But for the most part, I sort of accepted everything. I suppose uh, I was uh, maybe a little more mischievous as a child than some would be. We won't go into the details. You can ask those who know me about those. But basically, I didn't really throw it over. It just never really had much meaning to me. It was that sort of hothouse environment. I had nothing to compare my Christianity with. I hadn't come out of, a, of an evil lifestyle. So it, it was also matter of fact for me, and I know how that is, because some of you are in that same situation. I mean, you've been raised in a Christian home. You've, been, you know, you've had a Christian mother, Christian father, Christian grandparents. Um, Christian, you go to a Christian gas station, you bought your car from a Christian car dealer, you, you know, your, your insurance agent is a Christian, you only shop at a Christian market. I mean, you've, you've had that all your life. And um, it, it has a very sort of a common significance to you rather than a rather uncommon one. Others of you have come to Christ recently and you have a lot to compare it with because of the tremendous transformation you can perceive as having occurred in your life. But for me, it wasn't that way. So when, when I went away to high school to get involved in, in sports, for me, was all there was in life. I, Christianity was there. I believed it. But I really wasn't that interested in it. And I threw myself into an athletic career in high school um, because I really wanted to do that in college. And I thought maybe ultimately that would be my goal in life, to get somehow involved in athletics. Well, I graduated from high school, which wasn't easy, but it happened. It's a great day for my parents when that happened. And um, my father said, I think you need to get your life together spiritually, so I want to send you to a Christian college. So he sent me away to a Christian college, clear across the United States. We lived in Southern California at the time. And I was all alone in a, in a Christian college. And this Christian college was pretty, pretty legalistic. I mean, they had rules that just were really very hard to believe. You'd only talk to girls from 9 in the morning till 6 in the evening. That was a rule. Before uh, 9 and after 6, you could not talk to a girl. You could not stop and talk to a girl on the campus unless you were walking to the same building at a rather rapid pace. And when you went in the building, you had to stop talking and separate. Uh, if you did talk to a girl, you got demerits. And if you got too many of those, you could never talk to girls, even between nine and six. <laughs> Dr. Stead knows he was with me. Um, but it was a very, very unique experience. I was... I was kind of uh, lonely, away from my, my mother's cookies and <laughs> all of that stuff and all my friends. And uh, it was a very difficult time for me. I sort of became a recluse socially. Um, 
They, they had ways that they tried to get you to learn the graces of life, you know, to sit at a table and talk to girls and walk with girls to church and walk with girls here and there. And they tried to sort of cultivate that in some way, but it seemed to me a little artificial. So, uh, And you could, uh, you could, I think, once a month uh, go sit in a chair with a girl uh, and talk with a chaperone sitting there, too, and um, which was... We're thinking about that here. I don't know if we could get a... No. <laughs> but anyway, that's how it was, right? So this was very traumatic for me. And it wasn't that I had a particular problem with girls. It was just that this seemed to be very stifling. So um, I decided that year that I was just going to kind of crawl inside. And I was very... I was upset at God. And I can remember thinking, you know, God, I'm not that bad a guy that you should do this to me. I mean, I don't want to particularly be here, and I'm here, but it would have been nice if I was going to have to go somewhere I didn't want to be if the place was at least something I could enjoy. But this seems very stifling. And so I was very angry with God, and I decided that I just was not going to give God my attention. I was going to make him pay for punishing me that way, as I saw it. And I don't think I really consciously said those things, but that's what was in my heart. I was not happy. Plus, I was I wanted to participate in sports and the sports there were very limited. I mean, they only had intramural sports, you know, that's all. So um, I was very upset. It sort of came to a culmination. Uh, my time there when there was one event, I don't know if you were there, if that was our first year or not. But anyway, they had a sign dating. You remember that? Yes, you remember that. Well, I'll tell you what happened. There was a big, there was a big event, and some of us had, had not been socially adjusting, quote-unquote. So they decided that there would be an event in, in which you would have to ask a girl to go. It was required, mandatory. So they made the announcement that everyone will have to escort one of the young ladies to the dining room and then over to the thing they were going to have in the auditorium and then back to the dorm. And you walked in a line. You, you just walked in a line and then you walked in a line and you walked in a line. And when she went in the dorm, you peeled off on another line and went into your dorm. I mean, you didn't stop. You just moved all the time. So uh, this was going to be mandatory. So I decided I wasn't going to do that. And I said to my roommate, I'm not going to do that. So he reported me to the uh, dean. <laughs> Because that was his spiritual duty. So uh, he, he went to the dean and reported me, and I was in, called to the dean's office, and he said, it's come to our attention that you're not going to get a date. And he said, I, I'm here to instruct you that you will. You will get a date, or you will be in serious trouble. So I went out of there, and I decided, one, I wouldn't get a date, but two, I wouldn't tell my roommate, because I didn't want to re be reported again. So I couldn't hold it in because it was a day before the event or two days before the event and I hadn't gotten a date and I, I let it blurt out and the guy next door overheard me. And he turned me in, believe it or not. This is a true story. I know this seems bizarre. He turned me in again and I went to lunch and I got the same notification, come see the dean, and he said, now you are in deep trouble. It's been reported to us again that you refuse to ask a young lady to go. He said, we're going to have to help you. We don't understand what your problem is. We're going to help you. He said, I have the list of the girls who have not been asked. Now, there were about 1,500 girls there. Ten had not been asked by anybody. You can imagine what those ten were like. 
I mean, there's such a thing as scraping the bottom of the barrel, and then there's picking the barrel up and scrounging in the gravel underneath. You understand that. But anyway. So, so just to give you the perspective, you understand? Right. So I said, look, it's very hard to choose from this list. <laughs> so he said, I'll choose for you. And he chose. Emma was her name. Bless her heart. She was a lady shot putter, as I remember. Uh, I, I don't want to tell you all about her, but she was one of those kind of girls that when you want to hug her, you have to make chalk marks to know where you've been. You know, you sort of work your way around. Anyway, uh, she's the kind of girl, you understand? She gets on the merry-go-round and screws it into the ground, you know? Um, they don't let her go swimming in the ocean because the submarines pick her up on sonar, you know? Anyway, we, we won't go into the details, but... Um, you understand, right? Yes. So, uh, somebody said when she sits around the house, she sits around the house. Um, but anyway, she was a girl, no doubt, who needed some love and needed some, some affection, but I was very selfish and very self-centered and wasn't about to give that, and it was one horrible experience, but I had to accompany her to this event. And... Um, Soon the year ended, and I was coming home from school, and I was so anxious to get home and, and make a change and play football and baseball and all the things I really loved. I couldn't wait to get home, and I was sitting in the front seat of the car against the right-hand door, and we were speeding very fast through the state of Alabama. And it was 6.30 in the morning or so, and the guy driving the car started to pass another car. I remember it as vividly as if it was yesterday. And I was sitting there looking ahead, and he started around this guy who was in an Oldsmobile. He started around him, and he was going so fast to try to pass this guy that he actually lost a little bit of control, and he got onto the shoulder, the, the, the dirt on the side. And, of course, then there were some poles and things coming, so he pulled hard back to get on the road and, and started going back toward the car he was passing. And then in a panic, he just threw the wheel like this to avoid it, and power steering sent the car into orbit like that. And the last thing I really saw in terms of seat being seated was the car take off like that. And the next thing I knew, uh, my door was open and I was in the air, and I flew out of the car and hit the pavement going it was about 75 miles an hour. Now, I flew out of the car and I hit the, the highway at that speed, and I hit, as God would have it, in a perfect sitting position. I mean, the, if you're going to hit, I hit where you're made to hit. Um, I mean, I hit and just just in a perfect sitting position, hit the highway and proceeded to, to go a total of about 110 or 15 yards down the highway on my southern hemisphere. And um, it was an amazing thing, very vivid because I was awake and I can see the features of that highway even now in my mind. The car was beside me, now on its top. It didn't roll over anymore because my door having flown open, when the car went over, the door acted as a right-angle brace to keep the car from rolling again. So I was exited, and the car door was like this, holding the car, and it began to spin on its lid. Of course, all the luggage and things were on the top for six kids. So uh, it was grinding all this luggage in and spinning like this beside me, just a few feet away, and it began to spin off. And I didn't. I stay. I even stayed in my own lane, you know, just as perfectly as you could, you know, down the. 
Finally, I decided to try to stop, and it's very difficult to know how to stop. I mean, basically, so I put my hands down, and I have some scars you can see on my hands for where I got third-degree burns and then gouged up my palms, third-degree friction burns. And immediately after I stopped sliding, I was still totally conscious. In fact, I did not have one broken bone in my body at 115 yards at 75 miles an hour. Um, I stood right up, still conscious, walked right off the highway. I mean, I didn't want to get in an accident, you know. So I walked off the highway, and I stood on the side of the highway, totally conscious, and this is exactly what I heard in my mind. I, I just kept hearing, ringing in my head, the Lord did this to you. The Lord did this, did this to you. And I knew that. And I knew that it was my failure to put the Lord in the middle of my life and my plans that had brought him to the place where he brought me through that. And I stood on that highway near a little town called Utah, E-A-U-T-A-W, in Alabama, and I said, Lord Jesus, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. I can't play like this. you got too much advantage. If you're going to get tough, I give. And it was on that highway after my freshman year in college that I committed my life to Christ. I had been a Christian, but it was there that I came to grips with what it meant to be to have to say, I don't know about tomorrow. I can't make a plan for tomorrow because I may never have a tomorrow. And for whatever tomorrow I do have, I want to be in the place of God's will. And as he says in the last verse in that chapter, if you know to do that, which is the good thing to do and you don't do it, it's what? It's sin. And I said, I, I belong to you. Five kids came crawling out of that car, out of the ditch. Not one had a scratch. Not a scratch, just me. Sixty-four square inches of my back was removed a half inch deep and replanted with asphalt. I had to hitchhike 100 miles to get to a hospital. They put me in the hospital. They laid big furosin strips in there. And after they'd scrubbed my back out with brushes, they didn't give me an anesthetic because there were no vacant beds. I went into unconsciousness. They put me on an airplane, shipped me to California, had three months in bed. And during those three months, I remember I had a little New Testament, and I read that little New Testament, and I came to grips with what God had wanted in my life, and that's where the Lord really got a hold of my life for the ministry. A life-changing experience. I felt I owed the Lord another year at that school just to get it right once. So I went back for another year, and it was a different year, a better year, and God used that year to make some lifelong friends and to profit me in many ways. Then I transferred schools and I had the privilege of seeing in my life all the things I'd ever wanted to do come to pass. I was able to play football, basketball and baseball to, to have the opportunity even to, uh, to be in the draft, the football draft and things like that. And everything I'd ever dreamed of as an athlete. And the Lord laid a verse upon my heart out of the Psalms which says, if you delight in the Lord, he'll give you the desire of your heart. And I had once I had put the Lord in the rightful place, then everything began to happen right in my life. After my senior year, after I'd finished playing football, I was contacted by one of the local service clubs in the city of Los Angeles because I won some award as Player of the Week, and, and they wanted me to come and talk to this, I think it was the Kiwanis or something, and I had to go talk to them about this you know, honor of being Player of the Week. I went to talk to the Kiwanis Club, and all I wanted to talk about was Christ, and they were kind of shocked. But I gave a testimony about Jesus Christ to these guys. Well, as a result of that... Somebody said to me, you need to go talk to a girl in the hospital. So I said, all right, 
where is she? She's at the Glendale Adventist Hospital, which is the hospital uh, over in Glendale. By the way, all my four children were born there, and three of my sisters were born there, so it's an old standard hospital. But anyway, I went to the hospital, and I met this girl named Polly Greider, was her name. She was lying on a sheepskin because she was paralyzed from the chin down. She was head cheerleader at Thousand Oaks High School. Her boyfriend had shot her through the neck, right here, severed her spinal cord in half. And she was a total quadriplegic. And this person had said to me, you know, we don't know how to help her, but maybe you, from your knowledge of God, and this guy said, might be able to help her. And I went into that hospital, and I mean, here I am, nothing but your, your typical college athlete, trying to get my own spiritual feet on the ground, and I've got a responsibility to try to give some answer to this girl who's, who's a quadriplegic because her boyfriend shot her through the neck. So all I could do was tell her what Christ did in my life, and I said to her, she said to me, if I could kill myself, I would, but I can't. I wish I were dead. And I began to talk to her about the fact that it isn't what happens to you physically. Fear not those who destroy the body, but fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, Jesus said. It isn't what happens to you physically that's the issue. It's what happens to you spiritually, right? So I shared Christ with her, and I asked her if she wanted to receive Christ, and she said, at this particular point, I don't have any other choice. She opened her heart to Christ and was wonderfully converted. A couple of days later, I came back, as I did often, to see her, and she said, I want to tell you something, John. She said, I'm glad this accident happened, because if it hadn't happened, I never would have met Jesus Christ. That's an awesome statement. I've never forgotten that statement. I can see the scene in the hospital. I can see her lying on the bed. I can see myself standing there. Those words went into my head like, like uh, they were written in soft clay. I'm glad this happened. Or maybe I never would have met Jesus Christ. It's incredible. I went out of there saying that's what life's all about. Forget the other stuff. Forget running around on a piece of uh, green field with a pig under your arm or a piece of a pig. Forget all the hurrahs. I mean, forget that stuff. This is what matters for me. And that was as if it was the call of God right out of heaven. And he planted in my heart such a deep desire to give the word of God to people and the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. That that little incident in that hospital was a very, very important part of my shaping. By the way, God was gracious to her. She followed on in her faith in Christ, married a wonderful man who took her on as his wife, and um, she scoots around in an electric wheelchair, and God has been gracious to her. But that was a life-changing thing for me. By God's grace, by his mercy, then I went on to seminary. And now there was a whole new direction in my life. And I, I went on because I knew that's what God wanted me to do. I didn't know much. And the first few sermons I preached were terrible. I mean, they were a minus five on a scale of one to ten. They were really bad. I'm not even going to tell you what the outlines were. Bad stuff. But I knew where my heart was. And so my dad took me to Talbot Seminary. And there was a guy there by the name of Dr. Charles Feinberg. Now, he knew about, well, I think, 30 languages. I remember one time he wanted to learn Dutch, so he took two weeks and learned it. And so he could read a Dutch theology that he was interested in. But he was he was too smart. I mean, I don't know how he kept it all inside of, the, of his skin, you know. It was just incredible. And he had a great passion for the Word of God. And my father said to him, well, can you teach my son to be a Bible expositor? He said, well, we can try. <laughs> and so I spent that first year trying to learn from him. And I'll never forget my first day in class. Never. This, everybody's in awe of this guy. 
He studied 14 years to be a rabbi, you know, and he's got all this Jewish background. And then Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, the first president of Dallas Seminary, said he was the only student who ever came to Dallas who knew more when he got there than he did when he left. I don't know what that means, but uh, it's an interesting statement. But anyway, first thing that happened in class is one guy named Merville. Now you're in trouble to start with if your name is Merville. But anyway, and it turned out later in his second year that Merville dropped out because he said, I cannot think and talk at the same time, which is a problem. Anyway, so Merville raised his hand. He was in over his head, right? And Merville asked a question that had just been asked by someone else and answered. And Dr. Feinberg sliced up Merville with a little statement. If you cannot listen and ask more intelligent questions than that, Please do not take my time, the classes, and the Lord's. I don't think anybody ever asked another question in that class. I mean, I was in awe of this situation. But I grew to love the man and to get a personal opportunity to be his friend. And through those years, he became a personal mentor to me. At the end of that year, it was a very confirming thing. At the end of my first year of seminary, there was a, there was a wide receiver for the Cleveland Browns by the name of Paul Warfield, who later on went to play for the Miami Dolphins and now I think is in a broadcasting career. Somebody, some of you may remember his name. But anyway, Paul Warfield broke his collarbone in, in summer getting ready for the season. And so when they hit the computer in Cleveland, I don't know what happened, but my name came up and they had gone back through the available people and I was a receiver and a punter and stuff like that. So I got this call. My coach calls me from the college and he says, hey, he says, uh, they want to send you airfare. They want to fly you back. They want to give you a, a tryout. They need to, a receiver. What are you going to do? And I want you to know that uh, for, for a young man who had dreamed about that for all his life, up until a certain point, that was, uh, I had been to the Washington Redskins training camp as a junior when they were kind of interested in talking to me about the next season and so forth. But this was a real opportunity, and I, I want you to know that God had so put his hand on my life that when that happened, I immediately, without even thinking, said, tell him I'm not interested. I can't do that. Because God's called me to teach and preach his word. I just want you to know that that's why I'm here now, okay? And I just want you to have a little bit of a feel for the pilgrimage. In my, in my last year of seminary, the Lord brought my wife into my life, Patricia, and um, you'll be meeting her. Uh, at the time that I first decided she ought to be my wife, she was engaged to another guy. So I had to do a little bit of, uh, of stuff, you know, to work it out. Um, but, you know, you really don't want to be stymied if you, if, you, if you feel you got the right one. You understand that, guys? I mean, if it's the right one, go for it, right? So... Uh, it was kind of an interesting situation, actually. She was engaged to this guy. Um, he was nothing. I mean, you know. Um, and I took her home after church one night, and I just started planting deep doubt in her mind about his intelligence, his spirituality, his ability to earn a living. You know, I mean, all that kind of stuff. And I uh, just kidded her a lot. But the Lord is gracious and... Uh, she had the same vision for ministry I did, and uh, it worked out. <laughs> it was very interesting because uh, she had the invitations to their wedding in the trunk of her car for two weeks and couldn't mail them at that time. And the Lord just stopped that, and the Lord brought us together.
And I tell you that, too, because it wasn't in her plans and it wasn't in my plans. All my plans said, this is what you're going to do, John McCarthy. This is how you're going to do it. And I learned that I can't say that or the Lord may drag me halfway across the state of Alabama to get my attention. And all of her plans were, this is what you're going to do and here's how you're going to do that. And the Lord stopped all of that. And so I think between the two of us, there's a sense in which we believe that God has intervened in our lives to bring us to the place he has. And then I was working for Talbot Seminary one day, and I got a call from Grace Community Church. Grace Community Church was a church of about 450 people down in the valley. It was a good, thriving church with gobs of young people. And they, um, they called me and said, our pastor died again. They only had two pastors, and both of them died of a heart attack. And they said, would you come and preach? I mean, I had preached to their young people at camp. I had preached at youth rallies and conferences. I was nine summers in a row at Hume Lake, sometimes as long as two and a half months, Dewey, just doing camps, which is a great ministry. But um, now they needed somebody to come and fill the pulpit. So I went and, and I preached. And uh, they said, could you preach the next week? And I preached the next week. And um, they said, would you candidate to be the pastor here? Man, I was so excited. So excited because I was so tired of traveling around giving the same five messages, you know, didn't want to be an evangelist with five sermons and five suits. I wanted to get into the word and teach the word. And, and some, one church down in the Lakewood area had uh, asked me to consider being their pastor, but the vo board voted that I was too young. They were right. <laughs> but uh, Grace had had two older pastors die of a heart attack and they didn't want to support another widow. So they said, we don't care if he's good. Just make sure he's young. You understand. <laughs> so. Um, by the grace of God, they, they came back and they gave me a night to candidate. And I had been studying Romans chapter 7. And I'll never forget it. I went there that night and the church was full. And you know where the chapel is now was the church. That was all that was there was that. And that little nursery building behind it. And I was so excited about Romans 7 that I preached. And I really didn't have any notes. I was just sharing my heart. And I preached for an hour and 25 minutes. This is the, the time I was candidating for the pastorate. And afterwards, I felt so good because I had preached in such a way that I really understood what I was saying, which is very good, very nice. And I was really working through this myself. And I came down and someone else was leading a song and Patricia said, well, that's that. I said, what do you mean? Do you realize how long you preach? He said, an hour and 25 minutes. I said, I didn't realize that. Well, she said, I'm sure there are other churches. And uh, <laughs> she really thought that was it, that that was the end of Grace Church. They came to me afterwards and they said to me, that's what we want. We will you come back next week? And I came back next week and I only preached 45 or 50 minutes. So a little more sanity into it. But as a result of that, and by God's grace, they, they asked me to come and be the pastor. And that's been, it'll be 17 years in February, so 16 and a half years ago. And these have been wonderful years. And so I've learned to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live. We'll do this or that. And if he has to, he'll throw you on the highway. And if he has to, he'll take your wife away from a marriage that's two weeks away. And if he has to alter the plans, he'll even allow a church to tolerate a young man who is low in wisdom, if high in zeal.